0: Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech.
1: All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, um, the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, Please be seated. we got a great show for you today. And um, we're going to be talking with Charlie Mitchell. Um, He is the author of the freshly printed on June 20th. Um, So if you buy your copies now, you can probably still smell the ink um, of of the book, Hacked. The Inside Story of America's Struggle to Secure Cyberspace. And and Charlie is someone who, uh, when he says inside story, he is inside. Um, Charlie has been covering Capitol Hill for years, um, both as an editor with Roll Call, and he's now editor of Inside Cybersecurity. And um, so, Charlie, are you with us? I am here. Thank you, Bennett. Thank you for joining us. And... um, you know, so I wanted to emphasize the inside because I looked at your background working with Roll Call, which those of you who are may not outside the Beltway may not be familiar with, is like the Capitol Hill newspaper. And um, he also worked with Congress Daily, which I remember when I worked for a lobbyist, was the must-read every morning. Um, and now you've been well, working with inside cybersecurity, a respected um I guess, blog newsletter that uh, is widely followed. So, um, what led you to write this book? Well, Bennett, we started
3: covering cybersecurity. We were doing it in really a piecemeal fashion here at Inside Washington Publishers. And, you know, we covered defense policy and health policy and environment policy. And cybersecurity kept popping up in each of these realms and a number of senior folks here eventually decided to put together a new service inside cybersecurity devoted specifically to how the federal government was addressing this and what its expectations were for companies and what the laws were and that sort of thing. And out of that grew the idea for the book. You know, my day-to-day coverage was just showing a lot of the tensions and a lot of the – there were just – crazy things that were standing between doing the right thing, if you will. I I mean, on Capitol Hill, you had jurisdictional fights that were just bogging down legislation. And so Congress couldn't do anything about it. The Department of Homeland Security was kind of staggering around without much direction on what it should do. And it really seemed that, that the private sector had little idea of what the government expected from them in this area. And yet, the private sector owns 90 plus percent of the critical infrastructure in this country that is subject to attack. They own, you know, all of the retail sector. And these are the people who are getting slammed. And it wasn't really clear what they were expected to do about it, who was responsible, who was liable for these things, what's the government's role. And I tried to pull this all together in a in a story that would, show who some of the the good guys were, who some of the bad guys were, what the institutional problems were that were really preventing us as a nation from tackling a problem that's affecting every one of us and is going to affect every one of us for years and years to come.
2: Now, it's interesting, and um, a good point to start in every story is the beginning, and just by way of reference, I remember on my one of my reactions, visceral reactions on nine eleven, having lived in Washington, although I was in California at the time, um, was seeing the Pentagon hit. Was a a, a feel a, the feeling that the Pentagon was impenetrable, you know, and that was something that we, you know could never be hit, and just a feeling of vulnerability, knowing that people can get to the Pentagon and i mentioned that because your story when i say start at the beginning your story opens with a hacker getting um through to the um, cia director um john brennan right and i mean if we're going to talk about right. cybersecurity if you're going to if you're going to tag one person that i mean other than the president of the united states um that's a pretty good person to tag and was that like a you know we're completely naked moment?
3: That was a, a completely naked moment, and it really highlighted one thing in particular, and that's the fact that sloppy cyber hygiene is perhaps the number one culprit here. And this is, for the for all of their degrees and expertise and all this, the, the top-notch cybersecurity professionals will tell you that the most important thing that you can do is practice basic cyber hygiene, change your passwords, use hard to crack passwords, and it's a pain in the neck, and that's why people (laughs) don't do it. But, you know, if you can avoid using 77777 as your password, you will have actually taken a pretty good step to secure yourself. So what, what, what Brennan was doing was being as careless and sloppy as any average citizen. And the thing is, you don't always think that oh you know in my in my gmail account i happen to have some things that have credit card numbers that may have my social security number in there i may have old emails that have really important financial information in them for for example and so once somebody cracks that and gets into it they they have free reign and you're talking here about the cia director so right, yeah i don't i don't know that he was putting any classified information on there but holy cow do you want to risk that <laughs> right
2: now and, and your book kind of follows a progression you know from that event until ultimately you know congress actually acting on cybersecurity and it it seems there's an arc going on here of one First, uh, maybe it's, it's kind of a an Elizabeth Kubler Ross analogy or something, but you know, recognizing there's a problem, deciding to, to talk about it, deciding, and then getting ultimately do something about it. Um, it seems like that was a prolonged process.
3: It was a very prolonged process, and you had going back to the to the first years of the Obama administration, there was a lot of talk about this, and it took a couple of years before people settled on the general idea of a policy direction, and then it really took five solid years to get something through Congress to address this. And as is often the case with Congress, as you well know, by the time they get around to to acting, the problem has changed and it's evolved. But they did at the end of last year pass the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, and the central feature of this was was to encourage information sharing about cyber threats and, and cyber threat indicators is what they call the kind of the telltale signs of a, a cyber attack. And the thinking is that you can create what some refer to as a national weather map of cyber threats and that if policymakers and technologists and security specialists have access to that sort of information then you can head off attacks you can identify the the signs of attacks um, and you can respond more quickly and you can let others know that hey this this vicious piece of malware is out there you need to be aware of it and you can put your defenses up so now they've they've added these liability protections for companies to participate in that kind of process companies have said before you know I don't I don't wanna share information because it may end up getting me sued. It may end up getting me in the the crosshairs of some government agency that wants to regulate me. So now they have all this protection against that. And we're at the very beginning. We're going to see how this works. And we're going to see if this actually improves security. Companies are just now getting comfortable with the idea of participating. Um, It's been a very, very slow start. The law is Six months old, right. so that's not very long. But companies have been pretty hesitant, and companies have said, "You know, my general counsel says I shouldn't share any of this information with the government. That that they, they don't believe in the in the liability protection." So departments like so, the Department of Justice and Homeland Security they've put out more and more. They keep putting out guidances saying, "No, no, no, this is for real. You're really protected. Here. <laughs> you don't have to worry about getting sued." And, and but you know people are people are skeptical
2: so they have to do a skype call so they can see if their fingers aren't crossed um i, I guess maybe that's the that's, next that's step right. <laughs> but it seems that right um, exactly as part of the journey i mean i remember distinctly uh let me back up i remember in the mid you know, the 2004 you know i was trying to tell people and out here and tech that we got to pay attention to Washington because you know, they're going to do stuff that's really going to change our business models. And if you're not paying attention, you know they're going to do it for you. Um, and I remember being at a tech policy conference in 2004, some guy bragged, uh, a CEO bragged about not paying attention to Washington. They were irrelevant, And very quickly, they realized how wrong they were. And you saw Google and everyone else ramp up. And 2012, I mean, not that long ago, I was at a tech policy conference in Silicon Valley. And um, everyone wants to talk about SOPA and privacy. And there was this, um, I think it was a Pricewaterhouse or some survey of CEOs. And 80% of the CEOs said that they, they, they don't think they're doing enough on cybersecurity. And I raised the question um, to one of the panels, what can we do to change that? Clearly, that's not an incentive. You know, somehow, the marketplace is not rewarding smart decisions on cybersecurity. What should we be doing? And I got like a, a two sentence answer saying, "Well, that's that's not really an interesting topic. Um, we're not really concerned about that. We're going to talk about SOPA." And and I was just stunned. And um, and clearly, we we made some progress, but um, it, it seems to be this a slow recognition of the problem. I think of all involved, I think the tech community, I think the CEOs, because I think to a certain degree. It sounds like, and you've mentioned this yourself in your opening comments, that they want this voluntary system. Don't don't tell us what we have to do. You know, let us give you information, um, and, and you, sh- you give it back to us, but don't make us actually do anything.
3: Right, right, and and that is a major tension within the business community. A lot of people have said, "Well, I, I mean." I'm probably not a target and why should I make these huge investments and it does cost a lot of money to, to be cyber secure if you're a, if you're a corporation right. but there's a there there is a strong sense within major business organizations and within the the major industrial sectors here that they need to really take charge and they need to stand up or somebody else is going to do it for them and this is a, a kind of a constant theme and it's a theme in the book and it's a constant theme that that i see in my day-to-day coverage for inside Cybersecurity, that you know industry leaders are trying to tell their rank and file and their memberships at places like the u.s chamber of commerce if we don't do this the government is going to step in and direct us to do it and tell us exactly how to do it and that's going to be a disaster because the response to cybersecurity needs to be nimble, and it needs to be innovative, and it needs to be flexible and move, and all of that. And if you write these things into typical government regulations, you get a you get a rigid checklist type approach that just doesn't really fit with the cybersecurity right. challenge. Um, on the other hand, it's it's really imperative that the business community demonstrate that it's actually doing something. It isn't enough for them to say, you know, hey, we'll, we'll take care of it. You don't worry about it. They need to prove to the government. They need to prove to their regulators that they are taking steps and that they do have this under control. And how you actually do that is just an ongoing challenge here. Um, so, and it shakes out across all, all major industry sectors, the communication sector, the energy sector, the financial sector, which is, constantly under cyber attack as as you can imagine. Um, So it's interesting. There are a lot of very creative approaches that are going on. There are a lot of industry groups that are spending an awful lot of time, frankly, trying to reach out to their rank and file and encourage them to use certain steps, to take advantage of certain programs, to do all of these voluntary things and use these available tools. And And the message on the other side of that is You know, please, folks, do this, or else we're going to get hit with some major regulation in this space at some point in the upcoming
2: years. And you make an important point, I think, and you started highlighting some of the people that actually are doing things. And I think it's important in telling the story, and you do, is that it. One, it's important to mention the problem, and clearly you spell it out. But it's also important to mention that there are some people who are actually taking the lead. There are some heroes involved, and why don't you talk about some of them? Sure,
3: sure. and, and that's both on the government side and on the private sector side. Right. And there are some folks on there are some folks on Capitol Hill who really get it, and they've been pushing for years to, to persuade their colleagues to take some innovative new approaches on that. And and I would identify people like Tom Carper, the Senator from Delaware has just been issuing the call on the need to do something on this and coming up with creative ideas for years. And he's a Democrat on the Republican side. Uh, Mike McCall from Texas is chairman of the house Homeland security committee. And he has been a really innovative thinker on cyber policy. And I think that, that, Politically, you take two guys like Carper and McCall, and they are on absolute opposite sides of the spectrum on 99% of issues, but on cybersecurity, they're, they're right there. It just It doesn't break down, or it doesn't have to break down in the usual partisan way, and I think they really demonstrate that, and they were driving forces behind getting the law through last year, as well as getting a a law through the previous year that kind of cleaned up the way the government is organized to deal with cyber. As you can imagine, the government, it it wasn't structured to deal with this issue. And so it's, in fact, it has been structured very poorly for addressing this issue. And they took a real stab at trying to straighten that out. And I think they made a lot of improvements. It still needs to be implemented. Um, Another, another body that I would really point to that, that is, is not well-known is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which in one form or another has been around since Thomas Jefferson's time. I mean, they, they standardized the size of a gallon, for, in, for instance, but uh, <laughs> they have been very, very involved. It, they've gone from, from doing that and, and standard, standardizing the size of an inch and a foot and all of that to, to getting way into the pool on cybersecurity, and they are doing some of the best thinking and, and strategizing and creating tools and all of that that's going on anywhere. And they developed the, the framework of cybersecurity standards, which you may hear bandied about. It's Man. really this terrific organizing tool for taking a risk management-based approach to cybersecurity. And this is something that's being promoted out to U.S. industry, and it's being promoted out around the world. And it's really offered as the main alternative to taking a more you know, a more rigorous, mandatory approach to cybersecurity, you know, and so the message to companies is go out and, and use this framework, use these tools here or else you're going to get regulated. So the folks at NIST have just been outstanding on this and they engage with everybody and they are one of the few agencies in the federal government that I would say has no enemies that <laughs> they don't, they don't <laughs> regulate, they don't sue anybody. <laughs> they don't do that. They just kind of try to lend a helping hand and, and it's really respected. And I think people on the industry side, very much respect NIST and people on the, you know, in the privacy community who folks there are often very much at odds with industry on cybersecurity approaches, they see NIST as an honest broker, so so that's a terrific agency um and i And I would also say that uh, there are a lot of technologists out there who are doing some fascinating work and, and I think that this has been really embraced by the big trade associations I mentioned the the u s Chamber of Commerce there are other groups like the u s Telecom Association, which represents you know the phone companies and all and and others who decided again well we really need to be out front on this and we we need to move and we need to get our membership to recognize what's going on and so they've launched major major education campaigns to make their companies from the largest to the smallest aware of the threats aware of the policy landscape and to give them some very tangible steps that they can take to shore things up so it took a while to to really get the attention and get people focused on this but to their credit the bigger groups once they did they they said holy cow we need to be very very engaged on this and we need to get out in front on this and and so that was impressive so it's interesting to see a lot of people trying to do the right thing and you know, Bennett. I mean, what is the problem with all of that going on? It, it, it's it's hard. It's complicated. It can cost money. People have other priorities. It doesn't it doesn't immediately reflect in the bottom line. So um, I point out in the book that it, it's like you have this this weird analogy between the private sector and Congress. That you know it's important, but then another shiny object comes along, and you're distracted, and so you don't do what you know you have to do in the cybersecurity space. You let it – you say, I'll get to that tomorrow, and then we have the next huge breach, and, and it's a crisis atmosphere again.
2: Well, um, we're going to take a short break so I can see if there's an opening for Deputy Assistant Secretary for, of Gallons at National Institute of Standards. Yeah, Um, right. But but, um, when we come back, we're going to talk more about Hacked with Charlie Mitchell after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report on Cranberry Radio.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking to Charlie Mitchell about his new book, Hacked. And we were talking about um, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And I'm sure when you turn down the. of them, today, my favorite that, agency. That's <laughs> what you wanted to hear about. Actually, um, they did have a little bit of controversy. In the extent that they were allowing uh, backdoors as part of their standards, um, in, in some of the yes, this this came up right, and so uh, and they have.
3: Well, they the the question was whether the National Security Agency was influencing the way that they wrote standards for encrypted devices, and right. it came out, and I believe this was part of the, the Snowden leaks. There were some papers that he precisely, leaked that suggested yes. NSA had some influence here. The NIST folks have have argued vehemently that they did not tamper with the standards in response to that kind of request request from NSA, but they do acknowledge that NSA, like Made all other fun. stakeholders, does yeah, they they take an interest and they do make recommendations. And under the the government procedures law, NIST, NIST has to consider their recommendations. But they say, and I can't prove it one way or another, but NIST says that they did not do this this kind of deliberate tampering with the standards in order to create a backdoor for the NSA to to get in. They say that absolutely didn't happen. But that's what was suggested in one of these Snowden leaks.
2: And, and and what was shocking about it was precisely because of the point you just made. This was an, an agency that you know, the, if you had, I think we would have to you know spend a week researching and maybe come up empty to find an agency that was as highly regarded and unblemished as this. And and so right. that's why it was such right. a shock when it did come up. And um, so. You were talking about the absence of regulation and the fact that um, you know, working with the standard setup, um, you know, the, the framework that uh, it's set up um, is a way for businesses to, to forestall possible regulation at some point. At the same time, there is right. this body and, called the Federal Trade Commission. And, and what role do yep. you see them as having in this process? and um' cause, and where do you think we would be if they didn't exercise that role
3: right that's a that's a great question. And there is a chapter in hacked specifically about the FTC, and it's it proclaims itself the watchdog for consumers in cyberspace, and it has taken some very aggressive actions, enforcement actions against companies that employ. Poor cybersecurity for you know companies that handle consumer data. Um, they and they take this action under the the FTC Act of saying uh-huh. that they have the right to enforce against you know false and misleading statements. And right. so they'll look at a company and say, "You have led your customers to believe that you have safe cyber practices, and yet you were breached and you are employing weak practices." And so boom we're we're going to take an action against you and drag you into court. Um, and they have done this uh, on repeated occasions, and it's an important role. I would say that the the weakness of this approach though, the strength is that it puts companies on notice that somebody is watching and somebody has authority to really try to nail you to the wall if you're mishandling or or carelessly handling consumer data. Um, the weakness of it, though, I would say, is that it's a case-by-case approach, and so the expectations are not entirely clearly spelled out, and it, and it's not spelled out in a coherent way or a comprehensive way, if you will, so that you know how this applies in all different situations sure. and, and whatever. The, it, it's only going to apply if you come to the attention of the FTC and they decide to go after you in, in a legal proceeding. That's where you know the certainty that you get from a regulatory regime is. That's typically right. the strength and the benefit of a regulatory regime. Everybody knows what's expected of them, and they know the way the process plays out. And you have points of entry where you can come in to influence the rules and so forth. In an enforcement-based approach, it's a little more haphazard, and it's a little more you know, it's it's not ad hoc, but it is sure. case by Cause, case. And, Cause they and don't, that they just, don't, have,
2: that just isn't as certain. They, they don't have rulemaking authority. And, um, so, right, exactly. Um, and, um, so that's part of the problem. But, um, and it's kind of interesting because in, when I have met with legislators to talk about cyber policy, um, the one thing I've always tried to stress is regulate conduct, not technology. Cause, um, conduct, Technology is, regulating, context, like, um, regulating technology is like taking a picture. Um, you can either take a of a picture of something, when you're taking a picture of something in motion, you can take it and have it be blurry, or you can focus on that one moment and that moment's past. And, and that's kind of the, the risk of regulating technology. And the odd thing about the FCC, actually, here you have a statute that was passed before automobiles, <laughs> and, you know, just regulate unfair right? Exactly conduct in, in interstate commerce. The one thing I will say, though, is I once argued that you, there, there is basically, yeah. even though they don't have that framework in, in codified form, you can look at the consent decrees, they're public, and see, okay, these, this is really what they're looking for. I mean, it is there, but unfortunately it isn't packaged in a way that is, um, that is, um, in a way that's easily, you know, accessed, and and maybe that's where um, they could use improvement.
3: Right, right. And you're 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 also starting to get some big cases where the decisions do contribute to making clear to what what is expected in terms of corporate conduct. Here, uh, there was the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals decision in in the. Case against Wyndham Hotels and yes. Resorts, very important
2: decision.
3: Lost you. You're familiar with that? A huge case, and they lost. I, what did they lose? Uh, Seven million consumer records, or just something? Well, they had like three different and major hacks. Yeah, you know, so it was right, one of
2: those. Right. fool me one, shame on you. You know, fool me a third time. I forget what the, the quote doesn't go that high.
3: <laughs> right, right. That and that. That's exactly right. And the. Uh, the defendant's attorney i think used used kind of an unfortunate turn of a phrase of saying we're we are in effect being punished like you would punish a storekeeper for a banana peel on the shop floor and, and the judge one of the judges wrote, Well, if you have seven million customers slipping on your banana peels you 've got a real problem and that's that 's not just an honest mistake, you know so um, that was kind of a real slap, and I think that I think that industry writ large really thought that that case could be the one that would rein in the FTC and set some limits around the FTC's authority, and instead, it just did the opposite, and it, it codified the FTC's authority, and it made very clear that, yes, they can play this watchdog role.
2: Now, um, going back to Capitol Hill, there's... You talk about some people getting it. Cyber, you know, technology is hard for people in general, and then cybersecurity is, is even worse. I recall one congresswoman saying um, bef- that be- before she goes to a hearing, her homeland security hearings, you know, she has to decide whether she wants to go to sleep that night, <laughs> and, and that's you know kind of to express right. how alarming sometimes it is. Um, and. D- what percentage, or do you think enough people in Congress, I understand 535 people can't be experts on cybersecurity, but is there enough awareness that you think we're getting the job done, or we can get the job done, I should say?
3: I would say that I think at this point that the awareness is there. I don't believe it was a couple of years ago, but now... It's there at least to the extent that that a member of Congress isn't going to be dismissive of this issue. They they all know that this is a pretty important issue, and it's having a lot of impacts on their constituents. Um, will they do the right thing? Would they will they put it high enough on their priority list? I, I think that is always an open question, and just in terms of getting it you 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 do hear lawmakers who are in real you know positions of authority saying things that make you shake your head a little bit and and are just sort of at odds with the reality of the cyber world right now and reflect a real you know lack of understanding for how the internet works at a basic level or how people engage with technology at a basic level. And this isn't to say that they should be technologists or great experts, but there are some basic premises that you would hope that they understand And and oftentimes you're you're talking to somebody, you're talking to a member of Congress and you realize, wow, uh, this person just doesn't have any idea of what's going on here or what's happened here. And that can be a little bit disturbing, but uh, they all at least at this point know enough to say, Cybersecurity is important, and we're very focused on this. And so, so
2: um, my my belief has always been, and I think Congress has an important role. And I, you know, at a certain point, we do have to decide. You know, if business isn't deciding, isn't stepping up, and if the FTC, you know, enforcement actions are enough, you know, does there need to be certain minimum standards set? I, I think that at a certain point, we have to get there. But before we get there. The one thing about this type of thing is that it doesn't seem to be an economic – well, let me rephrase that. It it doesn't seem to be too huge of an economic consequence in many cases of having a breach. Although for smaller companies, I think it's something like 60% of small companies that have a data breach go out of business within six months. So you don't really – you don't hear a lot right. about it's that. Right. It's a pretty high number. It's pretty scary. Yeah, but the bigger companies. I mean, it seems right. like okay. It's I can if it happens, it happens. But it happens to everyone, you know. So there, there isn't necessarily. A, I don't know if they're calculating a loss of goodwill. Although Target definitely lost a lot of goodwill, and some other companies have lost goodwill. And so what I'm getting at is, at some point, there has to be a market incentive to do the right thing here. And maybe part of the challenge in, do, in creating that is people don't know what the right thing is.
3: Right. No, that's that's a a good point. And where are the motivations in all of this? And and the fact is that some of these very, very high-profile breaches have hit companies, and there was a lot of fear that the companies had suffered huge reputational damage, brand-name damage. And yet, very, very shortly thereafter, their stock price rebounded, and they were basically where they were before. And it didn't look like there had been any lasting damage. And you look down you look down, kind of the chain here and you know that if, there, if there's a false charge on your credit card, typically you're not held responsible for it. The buck gets passed a lot in this space. And so people don't feel directly responsible, directly liable. Um, they're not going to be left Holding the bag in this, and that changes your thinking about it. If you knew you would have to pay for it, you are you're going to be a lot right. more cautious and cyber aware If you don't think you're going to pay for it, it becomes just another thing that you know another thing to worry about at some stage. It's not something that you feel like, "Oh my goodness, I have to worry about this right now because I'm going to lose a lot of money otherwise right.
2: I mean, I asked Eric Schmidt more or less that same question. And he said, "Well, it's when boards realize they save money on insurance by having um, adequate security. You know, it's when they realize they're not paying out on lawsuits. You know, and so in some ways it's, it's a board level thing, but you know, they're they're seeing a bottom line. But the, I guess the flip side to that question, and being a pessimist, to my own optimist, um, is." If I'm a company that does everything right, you know, let's say I'm I'm in the top um, you know, ten percent of companies that, that really get it. And I'm doing, you know, I have Symantec, I have Norton, I have all of them over for breakfast every day. And and I say, okay, what should I do today? Right, right. And I listen to I do exactly what they say. Can you tell me I won't get hit?
3: Absolutely not. There is right. there is no assurance. And and if you are if there is a reason for a sophisticated cyber bad actor to go after you, they have very sophisticated tools. They have very advanced technologies. They can a determined a determined adversary can get in almost anywhere, with it, maybe with a couple of lucky breaks. But using a lot of skill they're they're trying to crack the hardest targets out there so you know including the crown jewels of the US government and the financial system and all they are evolving and developing cyber tools to get past the best defenses that our government and our corporations and our technologists can come up with so it's a very very scary adversary in cyberspace and It requires a very nimble, fleet-footed, adaptive response. And I think getting back to the question about regulation versus industry-led approaches, it's an industry-led approach that we're on right now. And I think we're very much in a proving ground of this. And it's going to have to show effects and demonstrate effectiveness in the near term or there probably will be rumblings to take a different approach. Right now, I would say we're in the the demonstration phase to see if this kind of voluntary industry-led strategy can actually improve security. But the the question is out. You mentioned corporate boards. There's a, a group called the National Association of Corporate Directors, which has gotten very, very engaged on the cyber question. And they're doing events around the country in which they promote They've put out a, a guidebook for corporate managers, and which links back to the NIST framework and things like that. But they're, they're being pretty aggressive out in the hustings of trying to get corporate managers to look at this and to incorporate it into their very high-level thinking about risk management. And they want cybersecurity to be up there among the things among the risks that top corporate officials think about every day, you know, you you have to think about natural disasters, you have to think about the sturdiness of the dollar, you have to think about all of these things that could happen and you try to strategize around that. And cybersecurity typically in the past hasn't been one of those issues that corporate directors would have on their checklist for their meetings. How are we doing on cybersecurity? It just it wouldn't be asked. Now, right. increasingly, it is being asked in those contexts, and, and that's important. That, that's a pretty significant evolution.
2: Also, it's interesting, and I'm going to take a break in a second, but it's interesting if you go to any company and look at the floor plan and look at where the CTO sits versus the CFO, the general counsel, and everyone else, and vis-a-vis the CEO. Now, a lot of times, the, C, the CTO is way off with the tech people. Um, which, which tells you something. So, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, we're going to um, get me one last question, in it, and then um, Charlie's going to tell us more uh, where you can get more about the book and maybe some other appearances he may have coming up. But we're we'll back after these messages. You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report on Cranberry Radio.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly.
2: And we're back, and we're talking to Charlie Mitchell about his um, freshly printed book on June 20th, "Hack: The Inside Story of America's Struggle to Secure Cyberspace. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere. And um, I'm going to ask him a little bit about his, his upcoming promotions, but picking up on your last comment, you know, let's, there's this kind of sense of, let's see how this, this early stage works out. And, um, the problem is, is that the threats are getting bigger. We're at a point we now we're talking about ISIS getting into a cyber situation, you know, being cyber offensive and, and efforts to get at infrastructure. You know, what if someone got a hold of, um, got into a utility, was able to open a dam. What, you know, whatever, you know, that type of situation. And so, you know, whereas before, you know, five years ago, we were talking about getting data. Um, in two years, we could be talking about making something bad happening that will, you know, in the real world.
3: Right. That's That's exactly right. And that is what keeps people up at night. The military has been very, very long concerned about hackers getting into malicious hackers getting into things like the electricity grid, um, telecommunication systems and all. And even as the Obama administration embraced this voluntary industry-led approach, the top generals would come out publicly and say, we actually need mandatory regulations. They were not trusting of the private sector to secure things like the electric grid. They said, well, we need more in this space And that's, that's been an ongoing refrain. And you mentioned the potential terrorist threat with, with countries like China. China has been, Chinese fingerprints have been found mapping out things like the natural gas pipeline system and and all of that. And the thinking is they're, they're, they're preparing for a potential future conflict, but they are also restrained in the way that, the United States and Soviet Union were restrained during the cold war that, you know, you you, you don't necessarily want to launch a nuclear attack and the Chinese and the United States both are in that position. We don't, right now we don't want to take down the Chinese electric, electric grid and they don't want to take down our financial system. It's not in either of our interests, but you look at, you look at ISIS and the thinking is, that once they have that capability they will use it
2: and right, there's there is no
3: restraint on yeah. them right exactly and and it's a, it's an existential battle for them and they will they will attack us as soon as they have the capability to do so and so the question is are we doing enough to defend the electric grid and when you start thinking about bringing down the grid the implications get very very scary very quickly from you know the uh, our economy runs on a real time delivery system, and our stores only have a couple of days' worth of supplies if the grid were knocked down if if supplies couldn't get into the cities in in basically within a couple of days, you have mass panic and potentially catastrophic situations on your hands so this isn't a it's not a real theoretical thing it's something that has major implications and this need for the private sector to prove that it's up to the task and that it will take care of things on its own, uh, the, it, it, the urgency is there. They have to do this fairly quickly. And it's not just the big major companies and the major infrastructure operators. You, you mentioned the dam. That apparently was Iranian hackers were rooting around the control New system York. of a, a small dam. In New York, right. Yeah. And the thing is, within our infrastructure, everything is connected to something else. So you get into a, a small, rural electric co-op, and you can start working your way up the chain to you know, a, a utility that's supplying a major city. It's all connected, and that's the strength of our digital economy, but it's also potentially the Achilles heel.
2: You know, after World War I, uh, the military did an exercise where they tried to um, determine, you know, how would we mobilize in response to a foreign invasion, you know, coming from the Pacific or the Atlantic. And as part of the, I think the exercise was done in the Pacific. Um, it took about two months to actually get um, move troops and equipment to the Pacific um, in time you know, as part of this exercise. And one of the people who participated in that and um, that exercise was, uh, I forget what his rank was at the time, but later became General Eisenhower and then President Eisenhower. And, and today is the 60th anniversary of one of his major initiatives, which was the highway system, which wasn't just a matter of you know, improving transportation, but he saw it as vital to national security and actually in our economic development. Um, he, he said this, you know, but he actually mainly saw it as necessary to mobilize, and 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 maybe we're at that moment again.
3: And and maybe and really a great point within that is yes, they developed the national highway system with a, a defense purpose in mind at the root of it, and yet this ended up being the the mm-hmm. economic driver yeah. that yeah. created the American century, really. It uh, maybe the same kind of thing can happen here, yeah. and, and you look at you look at the space program and how many technological spinoffs came out of that. Um, you look at uh, at the global positioning system. When the government agreed to open that up to private use, it just spawned entire industries and and probably trillions of dollars of activity. So there is a lot to be unleashed here. How that's going to be channeled remains to be seen. It's an interesting question, though, and and there there are so many dynamics at play here that it's just going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds.
2: Oh, indeed. Now, Charlie, you, um, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, if people want to follow you um, where, on Twitter or on your website, where should they go?
3: Sure, on Twitter, I'm at at Charlie Reports, and you can see some of the daily coverage. That I do, and inside um, insidecybersecurity.com is my publication, and we cover. This is for anybody who really needs to know about the in-depth policy moves going on. It, it's a pretty deep dive, but if if this affects your professional life, I would strongly encourage you to check it out, and. Um, Let's see, as far as tours, I, I don't have anything scheduled right now except I'm going to be in Minneapolis in August for the Presidential Cybersecurity Commission meeting there. And that's an interesting process. And if it comes to your town you should you should check it out. They were in Berkeley last week. And they are going to be in Houston in July, July fourteenth, and then they go to Minneapolis on August twenty third. And I'll be up there, and I'm I'm planning to do some events around the book there. So oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, that should be interesting, and, and more to come.
2: And um, actually, when we get offline, I, I may have some um, possibilities for you on that uh, that end um, in terms of appearances. So just stay on a sec after we sign off. Oh, terrific! But um, yes. So, but I want to thank you again. It's been a, a a privilege to have you and especially since the book is so fresh off the press. And um, everyone it's the book is Hack the inside story of America's struggle to secure cyberspace. And it's all, and it ends on an important note. It really would you saying, we have to decide if this is really important. And if it and clearly it is, so we have to do something.
3: That's, that's right. And it, and it goes, it's the type of issue that you can't just leave it in the hands of the politicians or the big companies or the, the system, quote unquote. Everybody's got a stake in this and has a role to play in this. And it's in terms of developing policy and developing a national approach, we're really at nation right now. So people can have people in all walks of life can have a big influence on how this plays out.
2: All right. Well, thanks again, Charlie. From, if you want our show notes, go to our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. On Twitter, get, let us know your feedback at Cyber Law Radio. And check us out at the Internet Law Center um, here in downtown Santa Monica, internetlawcenter.net. Uh, we're here to serve you. So this is Bennett Kelly. Join us next week. Uh, we'll be talking about the Net Roots Nation movement and the rise of progressive politics because of the net. Um, after these um, next week, and have a happy 4th July.